I hope you love your Bible because I'm going to read 18 verses tonight. And so let's get into the Word of God. The message tonight is, is a message I've given a little bit of a weird title to, but it'll make sense at the end. Unwilling to fumble the vision. Unwilling to fumble the vision. Nehemiah chapter number nine, verse number six. They're praising the Lord and they say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them by the way or the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. and They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Basham. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. they teach us in Bible school and seminary not to read that many verses because they say that our generation 
uh, won't track with you the whole time. Uh, I believe better things of you, so I'm breaking the rules tonight. I'm not only going to read those verses, I'm going to preach them all. Do you know what that means? I'm going to talk really fast (laughs) because that's a lot of verses. So may the Lord uh, quench your thirst as you drink out of this fire hydrant that I'm about to turn on here. Uh, Listen, I'm consumed right now inwardly with the vision that God is bestowing not only to this assembly of Christians, but I'm hearing it everywhere. I'm talking with a guy, we were on video uh, chat today. Uh, He's part of a leadership huddle that I'm in. And he's in San Francisco. And he's saying, Jeff, you're not gonna believe what God is doing with our assembly. And I said, I bet I will believe it, but say on, brother. And he said, "Uh, we've been a cessationist church for years and the Lord has knit my heart together with a charismatic pastor from the other side of town and we're gonna be merging our churches together. I said, that sounds very familiar. I think I've heard a story like that. Uh, It happened in Greenville about two years ago with another friend of mine, and it's happening in other places in America right now where Christians are sensing that the heat of persecution is stirring us to recognize what is essential, what is not essential, what should keep us separated, but what must call us together. And Christians all over the land right now are embracing the call of God to come together in unity and love so that we can make a difference, not for our denomination, not for our slice of the kingdom, not for any tradition or trend, but coming together to make a difference and impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we don't have to jettison off all of our convictions and our commitment to God's truth according to his word. We get the best of both worlds. And so as we're pressing into that, I'm finding myself just being more and more in a good way eaten up by the fact that God's moving in very unique, specific ways among his people right now. And let me tell you what's in my heart. This is in my heart primarily as a Christian secondarily uh, as, a, as a husband and a father and in a tertiary way as a pastor. What is in my heart? I don't want to fumble the vision. I'm unwilling to fumble the vision. And in this passage of scripture, I want to share with you four reasons or four um, points that help me stay connected to my commitment not to fumble what God is placing in my hands as a Christian in this hour, in this day. And I want to exhort you to consider the same thing. And let me give you these four things at the beginning. These are four things we must become convinced of if we're going to carry that, 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 that vision across the goal line and finish in the place that God wants us to finish. And the four things are this, and I'm going to open them up in a minute. The first is we got to remember who God is. We must remember what God has said. We also must retain an awareness of what God does and what God is doing. And then finally, we have to be clear on what God offers. And at the end of this passage, it's going to contain two things. One, an opportunity, and two, a warning. And so tonight, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get into the word of God. Lord, help me to speak. I need your touch. Let's begin in verse number six. And this is the, probably the clearest part, and I'm not going to unpack it much tonight, but we must remember who God is. If we're going to be unwilling to fumble the vision, 
And you're going to get hit, you're going to get tackled, you're going to get pursued. You can't fumble, you can't drop it, you can't turn loose of what God's putting into your hands, and our generation can't do it either. And if we're going to do that, we've got to remember who God is. There's three things said about God in verse number six, and here's the first one. We are reminded that he is the sovereign God. The word sovereign simply indicates this, that God is supreme and enthroned and empowered over everything. And if you don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty, I'm just going to ask you, who would you prefer be sovereign? God is sovereign. God is in control. And of course, the objections might be, well, why all the bad stuff? Well, let me just tell you something. God will take the evil that is in existence and the good that is in existence, and he will work all things together for his glory and for our good. In verse number six, they make this statement as they're worshiping God, as they are dedicating themselves afresh unto the Lord. They, the, the Levites and the leaders are singing unto the Lord in a worship service, and they say, you're the Lord. It's you alone. You are Yahweh, Yahweh. You are the Lord alone. You've made the heaven and the heavens of heavens. You with all of the host, and that refers to the angelic host, the earth and all that is on it. You have made these things, Lord, the seas and all that is in them. And so in their testimony of praise, they start out with this recognition that God is over all. God is above all. From God, all things uh, proceed that he is the Lord who created the cosmos. He's the Lord that created the earth and the dry land and the seas and all of the inhabitants, the human uh, inhabitants, the animals, the fish, the birds. You are the one who created them all. And Lord, you are also the one. And it's interesting that they chose this in their, their worship song, but they said, you are the one who created the host. At times, various times in the scriptures, this can refer to the stars in the sky, but I think in this context, he's referring to the angelic armies because of what's said next. You're not only the sovereign God, but you are the active God. You preserve all of them. Lord, you didn't just create it. You didn't just get it going and then walk away and let it putter out on its own. But Lord, you're preserving all things. You are working in all things. You are the active God. And it's a comfort to me to know this. That, that, that we, there's so many different layers to apply that on. Uh, God didn't just create you at the time of your birth, but God ordained the time of your birth. God ordained the context in which you would be born in. God chose the time and the place, and that was all with intentionality. But the intentionality didn't stop with you being manifestly created. The intentionality is still today. He is active in your life today. He is working for you. He is working through you. He is working around you. He is working toward you. How do I know that? Because the, the, the song singers here in Nehemiah 9 uh, tell us that it is God who preserves everything. That Jesus made that statement that, that not a single sparrow, the most insignificant of all of the birds of Jesus' day. Not a tiny one of those countless numbers of sparrows dies and falls to the ground without the Father saying, I made that, I know that, I see it. And so the Lord knows all things, even down to the number of hairs on our head. He's active. Now, we don't always discern his activity, and we like to. I like it when God moves, but I'm going to tell you something. Even when I can't sense him moving, that doesn't mean he's immobilized. He is active. He is working. He is not obligated to reveal to me the whole syllabus before I enter into the course. He he has no obligation to you and I whatsoever to say, now I'm going to do this on this day. I'm going to do this on this day. He doesn't baby step us. And part of the aspect of faith is this. Will you be who you're supposed to be even when you cannot discern God's activity? 
Because I promise you this, whatever he creates, he sustains and he preserves. The third thing is this, he's the glorious God. Remember these things when we're talking further in this message about vision. He's the sovereign God, the active God, and the glorious God. How do I know he's glorious? Because the Bible says all of that host of heaven worships him. There are innumerable angels. And one of these days I want to do about a month in studying angels and what the scriptures say. The, the holy angels of God that worship and serve and gather around the throne. Those angels that are assigned to protect and minister unto us. I believe deeply. I don't pursue angels. I don't worship angels. But I'm going to tell you something. There has been more than one time in recent weeks where I've said, Lord, I don't understand all that they do, but I will receive the ministry of angels if you'll turn them loose in my life. Whatever you say, Jeff, I don't agree with that. Well, you need to read your Bible because in Jesus tempted in the wilderness, when he was tempted by Satan over and over again during those 40 days, the Bible says at the end of it, Satan took off. And what did the angels do? They came and did what? They ministered to him. And we're told in the scriptures that sometimes we are entertaining angels unaware. Chances are, let me just throw this one out there. Chances are, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord and hearts are in tune with God, it is highly likely that you have come across angelic beings in your life and probably never knew it. But these angels are created just as humans are for one primary purpose, and that is to worship and to glorify this great God who is over us. And so this is who, in part, obviously not exhaustive, who God is. But don't miss this. In verse number six, you get a little taste of God's vision. God's vision was I want to make something immeasurable, space, the cosmos, all of the planets. I'm going to make all of the stars. There are 300 million billion galaxies with probably 300 billion stars in each of them. We, the, the number is staggering. God made them all. The scripture describes that whole activity of creating these multiple billions and billions of stars with this little phrase, and God made the stars also. It's just that simple for the Lord. Yep, I just made all of those billions and billions of stars. But he made all of that. His vision was, I'm going to make a creation that will bring me glory, and the crown of that creation is going to be humanity. I'm going to place them on planet Earth, and they will become the eternal worshipers, the everlasting worshipers of me. God's vision is that he would make everything to experience his beauty, his glory, his grace, his love, and his power. And friends, that is God's vision. And let me just say this, because I'm going to give you two other visions in this passage. God's vision will be accomplished. It won't be fumbled. That is a guarantee. It's the most certain thing that ever enters into existence, that what he has begun, he will complete. Let's go to verses 7 and 8. Beyond who God is, let's look at what he says. We're, we're given a little bit of a glimpse of this in God's interaction with a man named Abram. God assigns our identity to us. Verse number seven, look at what they continue to sing. You are the Lord. You're the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. I love the story of Abraham. One of the most beautiful stories, been so pivotal in so many of our lives. And if you're not familiar with it, this is the, the, the man whom God sovereignly elected to make covenant with. And Abram was not a great candidate. If we were going to pick somebody on earth to work through, we wouldn't have picked Abram. He had no pedigree. He had no family history. He was not a worshiper of the one true God. He lived in a pagan land worshiping pagan gods. And his whole family historically were pagans. And God, with no explanation other than God loves to choose what God loves to choose, he chose Abram and he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and through you, the entire human race is going to be immensely blessed. 
And that is what the Lord did. But notice that they are singing about how God chose Abram, brought him out of his paganism, and then renamed him with the name Abraham. The name Abram is very close even in sound in the English to the word Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means the father of many nations. And so God flip-flopped Abram's identity. He gave him a new name that spoke to his destiny. Now listen, this is ironic because Abram was an old man and he had lived many, many years, many decades with the name that signified exalted father, yet he had no kids. He's an old man married to an old woman, had no kids. He had lived his whole life with this mocking name that said, you're the exalted father. I imagine if he had a couple of punks in his life, they probably said, hey, you're 40 years old, Mr. Exalted Father, where's your kids? Hey, you're 50 years old, Mr. Exalted Father, still no kids. Hey, your wife's not getting any younger, Mr. Exalted Father, where's those babies? In his whole life, his name mocked him because it didn't, it didn't uh, parallel his, his actual experience. And so when God comes to rename Abram, God didn't take it down a notch to meet Abram where he was. God actually took it up a notch. He said, you're no longer going to be called the exalted father. You're going to be called the father of a many nations. God looked at Abram and said, your whole life, you've been thinking you've not lived up to your name. I'm not going to give you an identity that matches your struggle. I'm going to give you an identity that takes you out of your struggle and brings you into something greater than what you had previously thought. And that is exactly what happened. Let me tell you, though, every now and then, well, about 20 times per sermon, I will point out an observation that I consider to be a problem in the church in America. And let me tell you what the problem is. Most Christians are trying to find their identity in something other than Jesus Christ. They find their salvation in Jesus Christ, but they go looking for their identity in something else. And so they're going to find their identity in, in either their activities, their relationships, their pleasures, their pursuits, their attainments. And, and they're wondering why they never feel whole. They, they chase this kind of pleasure and this kind of pleasure and this kind of pleasure. By the way, that's the way I lived for the first 24 years of my life. So I'm not speaking uh, theoretically. I understand that life. You're looking for something. Um, it was that great prophet Bono that said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that was the anthem of my childhood. You know why people love that song? Because it speaks to their reality. I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, Abram hadn't either until God came sovereignly and said, Abram, I've got your identity and I've got a vision for your life. And he imparted that vision to Abram. What did that vision look like? Well, he's going to talk about that in verse number eight, but let me get the beginning of verse eight first. He assigns our identity to us, and God affirms us. Listen to what they sang. They said, to God, you found Abram's heart faithful before you. You don't know how encouraging this statement can be. Um, Abram, by the way, Abraham, he struggled Abraham was, was not a water walker. Abraham was not sinless. Abraham had a problem lying. He had a problem trusting God. Abraham did not always live perfectly and righteously. He, he would probably be shamed by a lot of judgmental religious people if he was alive today for some of the things he did. And yet the scriptures say when God looked at him, it got the, the testimony of scripture is God found Abraham's heart to be faithful to God. That's a beautiful statement. By the way, we're told, uh, James chapter 2, verse 23 maybe, that, that Abraham was called the friend of God. 
So a guy who struggled with telling the truth, a guy who struggled with trusting God, a guy who struggled with trying to do the right thing in the wrong way as he was promised to have a son and got impatient, and so he fathered a child out of wedlock with, with his wife's hand, maidservant. And so Abram wasn't perfect, but Abram, having gotten the identity from God and now was called Abraham, God looked at him and affirmed him. And this testimony of scripture is that God saw beyond the outward struggles and said, Abraham, I see your heart. Let me give you something here. Because I'm going to tell you the enemy's activity is to accuse you about every wrong thing you've ever done. And the enemy will seek to to move you and manipulate you to assign yourself an identity based on your greatest failure. The enemy will always try to drag you back to that place of defeat, discouragement, shame, and guilt. And so, the, and by the way, if the enemy doesn't do it, your own flesh will try to do that to you from time to time. Y'all are looking pretty spiritual and pious out there. Does anybody ever struggle with an overly sensitive conscience? Does anybody have a hard time, you know, feeling joyful before the Lord on the backside of some, some collapse or some sin? I mean, most of us feel really, really guilty. We get this religious guilt. But the beauty of it is this. When God gives you an identity in Jesus Christ, God affirms you in Jesus Christ. He never affirms the things that are wrong that we do, but that never leads him to condemn us. One of the beautiful things is, is you have the right to not listen to people who want to drag you back to your failures. You have the right not to live in condemnation. You have the right not to live shame. You have the right not to say, amen, everything you're saying about me is right. Because listen, there is no condemnation to those of us that are in Jesus Christ. There never will be any condemnation on us. And so the beauty of it is this, it frees me up too. Because I'm looking at Abram, and if Jeff Lyle's hanging out with Abram and observing, uh, Abraham and observing his life, I'm going to say, that dude lies a lot. Man, that dude tries to do God's will in the flesh by getting this baby with Hagar instead of waiting on God to fulfill the promise to him and Sarah. And this guy doesn't always trust the Lord. I'm going to say, Abram, you need to really work on your your deal. And God would step in and say, Jeff, why don't you shut up? Because you, sir, can't look at his heart like I look at his heart. Because I affirm his heart, and his heart is faithful to me. Let me me give you something, and I'm going to move on because I don't have time. You're not qualified to judge anybody's motives. I love you, but you're not that gifted. I am not qualified to judge motives. The lesson that God has taught me in the last four years is that I am never wise enough to judge somebody's motives. Actions can be judged. Fruit can be judged, but motives cannot. And most of the time when we smugly judge somebody's motives, we are not getting it right. Abram was a guy that most of us probably would have said, hey, man, hey, time out. You need to really go back to discipleship classes or something. But God says, no, 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 no. He's my friend. Uh, Isaiah chapter 41, I think, is where he, he is called the friend of God. And so that ought to encourage some of us that we don't have to be perfect Christians in order for God to affirm us. He doesn't have to affirm what we do all the time because you and I both do some things that are not affirmable. But he affirms our identity in Jesus Christ because we are accepted in the beloved. So be encouraged tonight. Now, God makes promises to us. I'm never going to get done with this message. God makes promises to us. Look in verse number eight at the end of it. Remember, this is what he says. He assigns our identity to us. He affirms our hearts before him, and he makes promises. Look at what they're still singing about. You made with Abraham the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Girgashite, 
And then they sing, you've kept your promise, God. You are righteous. This is beautiful. This is Abraham's vision that he got from God. God's vision for himself was, I'm going to create everything, this whole realm of created existence, and it's going to be for my glory. God's vision. And God made that happen on his own. But Abraham has a choice about whether God's vision for Abraham will come into play. Because when God called Abraham, he said, I want you to get up, leave your homeland, leave everything that's familiar to you. How how many of you know God is not interested in you maintaining your comfort zone? He he said, get out of your comfort zone. I'm not going to leave you where you've been. I'm not going to leave you as you have been. I'm going to bring you out of your comfort zone. Abraham, here's my vision. I want you to start walking to a place that I'll show you. So in other words, start moving. And Abraham's like, move where? God says, I'll show you. You just start moving. And so he did, he began to move. And then later, Genesis chapter number 12, Genesis chapter number 15, Genesis chapter number 17, God's affirming this covenant to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants. You're an old man. Physically, it can't happen. Old men and old women of that age don't make babies. But Abraham, y'all are going to break the mold. You're going to make a baby by the natural procreated means. I'm going to give you a baby. And from those babies are going to come, from that child is going to come, so many descendants that will be like the sands on the sea and the stars in the sky. That's my vision for you, Abraham. And by the way, that's not all I'm going to do. Do you see that land? You start walking through that land. I'm going to give you every single place where your foot touches the ground. It's going to belong to you and your descendants. So Abram. Abraham receives a vision from God. And Abraham had to believe God and start walking it out if it was ever going to become a reality. Abraham didn't fumble the vision. Let's go to the next one. Let's get reacquainted with Brother Moses in this song. And with Moses, we see what God does, verses 9 through 15. They are singing historically about God's faithfulness to Israel. And here we hear a little bit about what God did for the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. I I want you to just receive this. Here's something God does. God defends his people. God defends his people. Verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you know they acted arrogantly against our fathers. I don't have time to go uh, Bible history on you here, but... It's just a beautiful recounting of God's faithfulness. I mean, Israel had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, and it seemed that for 400 years, their prayers were ignored by heaven because they didn't get saved, they didn't get delivered, they didn't get redeemed. But there was a man named Moses whom God was going to bring back into Egypt to deliver his people. And when Moses, the liberator, came back into Egypt, God performed all of the 10 plagues, the signs and the wonders to declare his superiority over the gods of the Egyptians. And finally, when that firstborn child of every household in Egypt that didn't have the blood of the lamb across the door, when that firstborn child was taken by the death angel, Pharaoh finally said, get these Hebrews out of our land. And so they were leaving the land and they were receiving the bounty of the land as they left, the gold and the silver and the jewels, and they're leaving and they're being provided for and they're free for the first time in their lives. And as they're going forward, all of a sudden, they hear behind them the sound of horses 
and chariots and a marauding army of Egypt who had second thoughts saying, wait a minute, we're not gonna let them go. So the people were moving out of the land, but there they found themselves trapped at the Red Sea, an impossible sea to cross. And so the Bible says that God, the personal, interactive, aware God, heard them crying out at the Red Sea. And you know the story, God split the sea, Israel walked through on dry land, Pharaoh and his army tried to pursue, the sea covered them up, and God defended his people. I think I shared this testimony recently, if it's a repeat, forgive me. There was a time not too terribly long ago, matter of fact, it was early last year, and I was struggling because I was, I, I was, I don't know the proper verbiage, I was being mistreated by a, a couple of people. And inwardly, I was hurting, but I was also angry, and my own flesh was just wanting God to do something. And I'll just be honest with you, if God wasn't going to do something, I had a few things I'd been thinking about that I might be able to do. Uh, I know you never get like that, but I'm the carnal one in the room. But I I, I was really thinking, okay, Lord, if you're just saying, you know, I I can take care of it. Well, I, I, I I was saying, in essence, praying silently in my mind, but just talking to the Lord. And my, my prayer was this, Lord, when are you going to clear my name? When are you going to vindicate me? And I don't pray that way often, but I had kind of reached a breaking point. And I promise you, I heard it just like this. It wasn't audible, but it was better than that. It was so inwardly convicting. I heard the Lord say, Jeff, it's been 2,000 years, and my name isn't even cleared down there yet. And I said, ooh. He does defend his people, but he defends his people in his way and his time. And the Bible says you need to leave that to him. As much as we cry for grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for ourselves, it isn't amazing how quick we are to question God when he doesn't pour out anger and justice on our behalf against those that have wronged us. Um, Ultimately, we need to rest in this. We need to remember who he is. We need to remember what he says, and we need to know that what God does includes balancing the scales when he's ready to do it. And in the meantime, you have to entrust that to him. Israel did, and God delivered them. But he also does everything that he does for this one reason. We have to understand this. This is the foundational element of the Christian faith. God prioritizes his own name. Verse number 10. God prioritizes his own name. Look at the end of verse number 10. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. They were singing. They said, Lord, yeah, you did it for Israel, but ultimately you did it for the glory of your own name. And that's why he does everything. That is why the Lord is working. You say, Jeff, that just sounds selfish. Well, if if you and I were doing everything for our own name, it would be not only selfish, but sinful. But we're not God. And God deserves every ounce of glory from every single thing in the created order. That means God will get glory from every angel, from every demon, from every human, from every animal, from every planet, from every disaster even that happens in the natural created order. God's going to get glory for all of eternity. What God is doing is not striving to make a name for you or for me. We're going to benefit from his love, but ultimately at the end of the age, nobody's going to be slapping me or you on the back saying, man, you sure did shine down there. It's not going to be about us. When we look at the Revelation scenes, chapter 4 and 5, every single ounce of focus is on Jesus Christ the Lord, and it's all about his name. And the endless ages will not suffice to reveal the depth of God's goodness and glory, and he has invited us to experience all of that for all of eternity. 
coming through his son, bringing our sin, bringing our failure, bringing our shame, bringing everything that we might find that is wrong about us and coming in faith and saying, Lord, I acknowledge my sin before you, but I acknowledge even more greatly the glory and perfection of your son, Jesus, and I accept him as the Lord of my life. I trust that his blood has paid for my sin and I come to you in faith. And in that moment, God says, you are my child forever and ever. I accept you in my son. And I promise you something. I know that sometimes we have this thought, well, man, forever is a long time. Aren't we going to run out of stuff to do in heaven? Isn't it going to get routine after a couple of billion years? The answer is no. And that kind of question in, in my heart and anybody else is just born out of our limited ability to understand how gloriously good God is. And so he, he prioritizes his own name. He deals with our obstacles. Verse number 11. You divided the sea before them, so they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. I've basically already covered this. Some of you are battling right now because you've just got a few things that are getting in your way, a few things that are holding up your agenda, a few things that are countering your vision. If, if God, if you just deal with this or this person or this situation or this lack of resource, if, if you just tweak this over here, then Lord, I could do what I really want to do. And I get like that too. I, I'm not accusing. I'm just kind of observing here. We get like that. But ultimately, God, I have found this in my life. God puts obstacles in our way. And the reason why is because we're not quite ready to get on what's on the other side of that obstacle. The obstacles in our way are actually blocking us from something temporarily that will not be good for us in the present moment. Single people, I love you, and I, I know this always comes from a married preacher that says this, and I hate that, but I was single once too. I was a single Christian adult looking for a wife, praying for a wife, begging for a wife. Sorry, I got caught back up in the past there, but I, I was just really, really wanting to be married, but let me just tell you something. If there is a denial of that right now, it's because the one you're supposed to be with isn't ready for you yet, or you're not ready for him or her. And so God just throws up this roadblock and he says, you can wait. She's really worth it, son. You just need to wait. Don't settle for second best, ma'am. He's really worth it. Don't settle for second best. And so God will throw up obstacles. He does it in business. He does it in relationships. He does it in ministry. I'm telling you, we're, we're beginning to walk into some things that I saw 20 years ago. We're just now beginning to walk in it. How many of you know God's never in a hurry? I mean, good night. It's like, wait for 20 years, and then let's cram it all into the last four months. I mean, it's just amazing how he works. But I want to just promise you something. I want you to be encouraged. He knows that obstacle better than you know it, and he's working on it. He's not troubled by it. He can move it today if he wanted to, but it's not good for you yet. And so can you praise him when the obstacle's right there blocking your path? Can you stand still and know that he's the Lord? Can you trust his sovereign care for you and his timing? Of course you can. He intentionally leads us, verse number 12. Matter of fact, I'm just going to have to breeze through these because the whole message is actually centered around verse 23, and I've got to get there quick. God intentionally leads us. Look at this. They're still recounting Moses' vision. He says, Lord, you led them in the day by the pillar of cloud, by a pillar of fire in the night to light them in the way in which they should go. You came down on Sinai and you spoke with them. You gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, commandments. 
It goes on to say in verse 14, you commanded them commandments and statutes by law, uh, uh, from the law by your servant Moses. Check out verses 12 through 14 real quick, and let me just show you a couple of ways that Scripture says God has led his people. He leads them with visible signs, with supernatural works. He led them, Israel, in that day with a pillar of cloud that they followed during the day. And when the sun set at night, he put a pillar of fire in there, supernatural means by which God led his people. But it wasn't just the supernatural stuff. He also spoke with them. He spoke through Moses, but pardon me, he communicated with them. He would speak to Moses, Moses would speak to the people. Moses would speak again with God and the communication pattern spoke, uh, continued as God spoke to his people. So it was signs, it was wonders, it was the voice of God. We would say the voice of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, my sheep will know my voice. And so you've got the signs, you've got the wonders, you've got the supernatural stuff, you've got God speaking to his people. But then you have something very objective that might make some of you feel a little safer, the written word. Moses went up there, heard from God, wrote down, inspired by God to write down the the commandments, the Decalogue, the law, all of that. And so he gave them the written word. And I love this. I love the fact that the creator hasn't stopped being creative. That when God wants to get through to you, he can use a variety of means to get his vision, to get his message to you. Our job is to be grounded in the objective word, the written word of God, so that we can properly discern some of the things that might be subjective. In other words, I don't want to live my entire life by signs and wonders and supernatural stuff. I need the Bible to anchor me so I don't end up being, you know, what what does Dustin call it? Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Church or something like that where people are just off doing weird stuff all the time. But at the same time, I don't want to be so... petrified of anything that's not in the word that I might miss some of the supernatural way, the providential ways that God is working. The point being is this, God knows how to lead us. That's never been an issue. The issue is whether or not we will follow him as he reveals his vision. So verse number 15, he discloses his plans for us. I love this. Here we go. We're getting there. They're still singing to the Lord. This is all a song, by the way. It's the Levites and the priests just offering up praise unto God. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. That's in the wilderness. And you brought water out from the rock for their thirst. That's all supernatural. That's all miraculous provision. And you told them to go into the possess the land that you had sworn to give them. There you go. Abraham's vision, Moses' vision, and the rest of the message, just a few verses, is going to be about Israel's vision. What was Israel's vision? After being delivered from Egypt, God says, Israel, let's get across the sea, and in about a month, you're going to be right up on the edge of Canaan land, and that's the promised land that I swore to Abraham, and and you're going to go in, and you're going to take it, and I'm going to take care of all your enemies. I'm going to fight your battles for you. You're going to subdue the land. You're going to eat of the good of the land. It's the promised land that I have been waiting to give you, and you're going to be the generation that can go up and take it. So Israel had a vision. Now, Abraham completed his vision. Moses got his vision at the burning bush, and he went down and delivered Israel. So Moses didn't fumble his vision, but watch this with Israel. This is where the warning comes in. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, they fumbled. They fumbled. But the beautiful thing is, is that when one generation fumbled, the next generation got to pick up the fumble and run with it. So watch this here. What God offers, verse number 16, 17, 18, and 19. Here's the beautiful, I'm just going to encourage you with the goodness of your God. God, give us the spirit. He gives patience, grace, and mercy. Look in verse number 16. 
God said, go up, verse 15, and get the land that I'm giving you, verse number 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders you performed. They stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader to return back to their slavery in Egypt. Now, just stop there for a minute. God's trying to give them the fulfillment of a promise and a vision. It's theirs. And they got up to the edge of the land and 10 leaders, I swear I've worked with these guys in the past, 10 leaders looked at it, and they're not here anymore, by the way, so don't read anything into that. 10 leaders looked and they said, uh, we can't do it. Uh, we, saw, we saw giants over there. We saw some really big obstacles over there and we just can't do it. Joshua and Caleb are like trying to you know, stop the meetings. Like, oh, no, 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 don't listen to those guys. We are well able to go up into the land. Let's go, come on guys, pack your bags right now. Don't listen to these guys, let's go do it. They saw giants, we saw grapes. Let's go over there and get the grapes. And, and of course, the 10 spies won the day. And so Israel didn't go. They stiffened their neck, they hardened their heart. They refused to trust God. They did not believe God. They forgot all of the things that they had seen in Egypt, and all they saw was the toughness, the price, the cost, the risk, and they did what a lot of people do. They say the risk is too much. It's going to require too much of us. The vision is too big. Well, yeah, it was too big for them to do on their own, but that was never part of the pledge. God didn't say go up there and do it on your own. God said, I'll do it. You follow me, I'll take care of business, you're going to win. And they said, no, we aren't. We won't win. God said, I I told you you'd win. And 10 men infected probably up to 2 million people. By the time you get to Numbers chapter number 14, you've got the whole group wanting to kill the people that believed in the vision, and they're all murmuring and complaining. And for the next 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Now, I, I mean this reverently. If you were God or I were God, wouldn't you just wipe them out? Yeah, well, some of you are being honest and some of you are afraid to say it, but most of us just say, you know what, y'all blew it. I mean, most of us are like, I don't want to wait 40 years watching these people complain and murmur and, and let's just wipe them out right now. But he didn't. Look at verse, go back down into the path. If you'll put this point back up on the screen, if you don't mind, so they can read these words. Verse 17 says, they refused to obey. They stiffened their neck, but you are a God ready to forgive. Hallelujah. Gracious and merciful. Hallelujah. Slow to anger. Double hallelujah. And abounding in steadfast love, and you didn't forsake them. He didn't wipe them out. Now, they weren't going to get to inherit the vision and the promise, but God didn't wipe them out. What did he do? Verse 18. Uh, Verse 18 says they they even did worse. They, They made a false God, committed blasphemy, and yet verse number 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Man, that'll preach. Because all of us have walked a little season in the wilderness because of our failures, our mistakes. And I just want to say what they sang thousands of years ago. He did not forsake you in the wilderness. He did not give up on you when you had maybe given up a little bit on him. But he took care of you, and that's what the next verse is. He offers provision, protection, and progress, verse 20, to a group of people who didn't deserve it. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. He took care of their needs. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. Now, they chose to live in the wilderness, but God didn't abandon them there. He just took care of them there until their lives were over. They died in the wilderness, not because of some fault in God, but because they didn't have faith. Because they would prefer to wander around in dry circles for four decades rather than go in and fight for a little bit and take the promised land flowing with milk and honey. 
And so the Bible says they lacked nothing in the wilderness. The only thing they lacked was what they what sentenced them in the wilderness, the, the lack of faith. But provision-wise, God didn't abandon them. And the Bible goes on to say, and this is what I want to get to in the last five minutes. What God does and what God offers is wisdom to the next generation. That generation, that first generation that was delivered out of Egypt failed. Look here in verse 23. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. You gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. I love this. Oh, this is so good. I probably will not be able to express it in a way that'll bless you like it's blessed me. I feel like what God is offering to our generation has a parallel of what we're seeing right here. I don't believe that we are the first generation that God has offered the vision of coming together in unity, coming together in love, coming in together to look into the land and say, we can fight the enemy and we can win in this land. We can come against by the power of God, through the truth of God, in the spirit of God, we can come up against the greatest forces that hell might throw at us, the greatest forces that are at work in a, in a godless culture, that we can actually walk on this terra firma and the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hand and unifying love according to the call of Christ on our lives, and we can win the battle for the glory of Jesus Christ. Are there giants? Yeah, there's giants. There's always been giants. But don't forget, there's grapes. There's the fruit of the land. And I believe that maybe, maybe, it's been many generations that God has offered this to. Maybe your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, your great-grandparents' generation. And they said, no. No, we don't want to go into the fullness. We don't want to walk in this vision that cost us something. We don't want to leave the wilderness because we're used to the wilderness. Lord, the wilderness is better than slavery, and we were once slaves. At least we're not slaves anymore. We'll just settle for the wilderness. And God said, I didn't destine you for the wilderness. I destined you to walk in the vision that I gave, the calling that I gave, and go into the promised land. And that one generation said no, but the beauty of it is this. The Bible says, while those parents were in the, genera- uh, in the wilderness, God multiplied their children. And so for 40 years, children were being born, and they saw what it was like to live in their parents' wilderness. They didn't get a vote, by the way. Those kids didn't get a vote. They had to inherit what their parents sowed in faithlessness. Let's think about that. Our kids eat at the table we set for them. So do our grandkids. And when God puts a vision before his people, we have to recognize it's not about the present moment primarily. It's about all that God wants to do from this point of inception. What comes after is attached to that moment where we stand on the edge of Canaan and say, are we gonna go in or are we gonna say no? And so that generation said no, but the next generation said, we've learned what happens when we say no to what God's doing and they walk through it. I think, if I can make this parallel, and I'm going to be done, I think that in this passage, we are very much like that second generation. We've seen the wilderness of religion. 
We've seen the hypocrisy. We've seen the dead orthodoxy. We've seen the foolish trends in churches and all the stupid techniques that fabricate some work of the Holy Spirit that's not a work of the Holy Spirit at all. We've seen all of that and our hearts are crying out. My generation and younger, let me tell you what we want. We want authenticity. We want genuineness. We don't want the shellacking and the veneer and the religious hypocrisy. We want to strip all of that away. We want to say, God, what are you doing? Because we want in on it. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. In this house, he's offering us that. My prayer is that we'll walk through that together beginning this Sunday with a testimony of us affirming what we see God doing.